Welcome, everyone, to American Girls, the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. Thank you for being here, Allison. We're here again for our Addy bonus episode, bonus, bonus episode. Wow. What a a time to be alive. A true bonus. Oh, my God. This conversation we had with this very special guest was so crazy. I felt like she dropped so much knowledge on us in such a brief amount of time that my head is still spinning. Like... If this conversation had happened 180 years ago, this was the equivalent of a lightning bolt coming through via telegraph line. Like, that was how hard she hit us. You know, without further ado, we spoke with um, Vera Siskelski, who works at the historic Stagville State Historic Site in North Carolina. And this happened through the magic of DM. Wow. Where all great friendships really begin their lives, right? I mean, twice a day, Instagram tells me this image has been blurred for your protection. (sighs) I click it. Brave. It's always a doll. Thank you, listeners. It's always a doll or a young person surrounded by toys or things like that. But one of you reached out to us and said, you do know that Historic Stagville celebrates Addie's birthday. And I said, no, I did not. And where's my invite? So you also told us that they have the documents that are the origin for Addie's story. So, you know... Being as plucky as we are, we figured what would the Olsen twins do? Exactly. They would just DM Historic Zagville and see if they'll do an interview. And they were so amazing. During COVID times, they got back to us within a week. Vera powered through, uh, you know, like farm emergency to speak with us. I mean, it was great. I don't even know what those words mean. But, you know, I'm so thankful to Vera for making time for us. And, you know, Allison, if we really were like the Olsen twins tackling this, I would have divorced my husband in an emergency filing in (laughs) preparation for this interview. I know the exact nature of the emergency, other than just like the circumstance itself, remains to be seen. Yeah. I mean, I've done what research I can. And and so far, there's just a lot of like rough conjecture that she wanted to have children and he didn't. And, you know, she was afraid he was going to throw all her stuff out in the street and, you know, felt like she had to do this. So... You know, this pandemic's hitting us all pretty hard. So I started doing my research and then I realized, how am I going to possibly stockpile enough artistic looking bowls of cigarettes in time for your nuptials? Allison, this is uncanny. I had the same exact thought. How? Where? When? Why? God, this, it's like as a wedding, like planning my own nuptials, I didn't account for bowls of cigarettes and I feel embarrassed. And now it's like, what am I supposed to do? Where do I turn? I don't know. And I don't even know that this is like a proper segue. Something that we learned from our very distinguished guest is that the real place that the Addy Books is based off of was a tobacco plantation. Yeah, that was that was tough to learn. Also, in the same week that we both were encountering a newly published Doris Duke biography. I'm not done with it yet, but you finished it. And of course, her money comes from... A tobacco fortune as well. I read that book in one day. That book didn't deserve me. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, I know you have strong feelings about it, and I still want to read it just so I can be on your level. So I am going to do that for you. I need to. I like the way we're protecting the identity of this biography by not actually naming it. It's for the best. Like, you know, like in the same way that we'll solve any crime by dinner time, I'll withhold the title of any book that I think the author may be embarrassed to have published in the future. Yes. Yes. Now, like speaking of like past, present, future, one of the things that was so powerful about the interview, like being very sincere, very serious about this, the interview that we had with Vera, she walked us through not just the story of what it would have been like in the same time as Addie's setting, which is, you know, 1860s, but actually took us all the way through the different lives of the plantation and the way that it persisted through the system of sharecropping. Um, She gave us this like amazingly brilliant and dense family history. And honestly, we were riveted. We learned so much about these real people that the walkers are based on. Yeah, I, I truthfully didn't know any of that before this conversation. And it really helped to kind of put 
Addian conversation with the history in which she's based in a way that I think is beneficial for readers like us who are at least by age count adults, um, if not by behavior, um, to think with in a way that, you know, when you're eight or nine years old reading these books for the first time as we were, some of this um, accounts of real violence and sexual abuse and sexual assault would not have maybe been appropriate to share. But now to kind of know some of these really serious um, contexts for the lives of people who's in many ways inspired Addie's story really help, makes you think differently about mm. the books themselves and the trajectories. And also, I think a really important piece that she flags for us is that, you know, as we talked about in a previous episode, I think, Allison, you said that learning about the civil rights movement in the 90s presented it falsely as a completed movement. And so really thinking about the Civil War and civil rights in a similar context, that Addie's story doesn't end just at the end of book six, but obviously her life would have continued through Reconstruction. What would that have looked like for Addie and for her peers, thinking about sharecropping and even thinking about current attempts to still have conversations with descendants of folks who lived on this plantation? Um, so I, I was really moved by it. I thought it was really powerful. And I think we can consider this perhaps the first entry in what we're calling our Addie, Addie syllabus, which we will have another mini episode out this week to talk about in further detail and we will make available online. So, you know, thanks to all of you for reaching out to us with these suggestions, not only of things to go on the syllabus, but also for guests. I mean, we met Lacey, we met Vera through really your connections and this community of listeners. So we're really appreciative of you. So without further ado, much thanks to Vera. Let's dive right into this interview. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. So we are here today with um, Vera Soselski, and we're very excited to talk to you. Humble brag, we had the same internship one summer, not together. Whoa. Spoilers. Oh, yes, we looked into you. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we reached out to your site uh, via Instagram because one of our listeners actually wrote to us and explained that Historic Stagville, where you are the site manager, has all these amazing connections to Addie, not just when the Addie Walker books were first being written, but also more recently with some events that you've been putting on. Um, I did just want to brag for you for a second. Vera is a Williams College graduate where she studied environmental studies and American politics. Good choices. Um, her focus is on nonfiction, um, oral history, and regional identity. She's worked at the North Carolina Maritime Museum, the Core Sound Waterfowl and Heritage Center, Mystic Seaport. Wow. Dramatic pause. <laughs> um, and Noah. Um, and we're really excited today to talk to you a bit about your role at Stagville. But first, we have our most important question, which is who are you in the American Girl universe and why? Oh, that's really hard because I did not prepare for this question at all. Um, mm -hmm. I have been talking to a lot of my colleagues about American Girl this week and about their various childhood memories of American Girl. Um, the only American girls whose stories I remember very clearly from library books as a child are Addie, whose mm -hmm. stories I spend a lot of time with professionally right now, um, and Josefina, um, who was my favorite American girl as a child. So maybe I'll identify with her story the most, but it'd be hard for me to articulate exactly what about that, uh, her I personality. Mean, do you feel safe? What was that? 
do you feel safe? <laughs> like I'm asking some follow-up questions. As someone who's very new to the host of Fina books, like that's what I've emerged mm. with. Like if someone identifies as the host of Fina, it's like get worried on your behalf. <laughs> like she took a my view yeah. is like she took a lot yes. on. She was living with her murderous aunt. I don't know if you remember that from the books, but you know, there's like a homicidal aunt in the book, Tia Dolores. Uh, yeah, it wasn't that part that I was resonating with right away, personally. Yeah, I, I do checking, feel personally safe. I don't know you. about any of that in my own family tree, but but I appreciate the check-in. Yeah. You have, like, beautiful Josefina-length hair. Mm. You which, do. like, listeners won't know that, so we have to kind of, like, fill that in. Okay. But part of what made us really interested was this listener kind of making this connection for us and where it came was with Addie's birthday. And like, Mm -hmm. if you had told me that as a 32 year old woman, I would wake up, you know, five times in the month of April and be like, it's this doll's birthday. I need to stage a photo shoot. Wouldn't have believed you, but it's where I am. So (laughs) Addie's birthday, I stage a photo shoot. I get her ready. Like I get myself ready just in case I get like captured in a mirror and someone DMs us and says, you know, there are sites that do Addy birthday parties. And we are like, yes, we know we're waiting to be invited. Second piece, historic Sagville was the direct inspiration yeah, and that you have actually hosted an Addy birthday party. So could you kind of take us back first 30 years? Like how did that partnership start? Yeah. So I wasn't working here. I've only been with Stagville for about five or six years now. Um, but uh, in this story actually kind of goes back to the 1980s. Um, there was a uh, African-American woman, a historian named Alice Ely Jones. She's from Murfreesboro, North Carolina. Um, and Alice Ely Jones was um, the first Um, African-American researcher to really dive deeply into the history of the African-American families who were enslaved at Stagville at this massive plantation site in Piedmont, North Carolina. And um, she did an amazing series of oral histories with descendants of people who had been enslaved on this land. Um, And she spent several years here as a research fellow. And she was one of the first um, researchers to really Uh, bring forward the focus on the story of the African-American experience on this land, which is currently the work that our site does is all centered around interpreting the history of a plantation site and plantation land with a focus on, on race and slavery and and the African-American experience. And um, so Alice Ely Jones um, worked very closely with descendants of Stagville families and became immersed in this African-American history. And um, then Somewhere along the way, um, she became involved as a consultant when they were writing the first book in the Addie series. Um, and I know from other research that that a number of other folks were consulted along the way. Um, but there's very clear ties between, um, especially some of the artifacts that um, are in Addie's book, which tie to real artifacts that were excavated by archaeologists here at the site, um, and also a real family who were enslaved on this land um, and their story of freedom seeking was again, something that Alice Ely Jones pulled on as a inspiration and kind of a way to ground um, at least the first Addie book in, um, in a particular uh, nonfiction story and in a, a very real family experience we can talk more about that family's experience, which was in many ways very different than Addie and her family's story in the book. But um, for anyone who has the um, original edition of the Addie books in Meet Addie, if you flip to the little section at the back, which has the uh, real history tidbits and pictures and historical context. Um, you'll actually see an image of an artifact from Stagville that was used in those first uh, early editions of the books um, and included there. Um, and um, ever since then, Addie has been part of our site's programming to some degree. Um, and over the last uh, five or six years, we've had uh, this Addie birthday party event, which focuses on um is an event mostly for children, um, but focuses on both kind of diving into the context for Addie's story, but again, helping 
young readers build a connection between the story that they're reading, the doll they might have, and the real history that we know about here, um, and the real kind of context that we can ground that story in at our site. Um, and of course, for me, one of the most fascinating parts of that programming is um, how many people we find who grew up right here in North Carolina, or maybe here in Durham, or right up the road. Um, even, you know, folks who are now in their 20s or 30s who grew up reading the Addie books, who have lived here all their lives, who never realized that those books had a grounding in a, a real family's experience, um, it, maybe in the place that they're from in some readers' cases. Um, and I certainly grew up reading the Addie books, and I don't think as an adult until I came back to them. I really remembered that they even that the early parts of the story even took place in North Carolina, um, let alone that it was based on something that uh, is history from my hometown. I, I grew up here in Durham, so this is this is my place. Um, when you say young readers, like is that under thirty five or? <laughs> <laughs> um, well. I think that we have been talking a lot about develop the need to maybe develop a program and we were actually hoping to do it this year, but I don't know now that we're in the midst of COVID-19 if that's going to become a reality. Um, but um, we are hoping to develop a program actually for uh, yeah, folks in their twenties and thirties and, and folks who grew up reading these books who are no longer school aged um, who um, want to maybe engage a little more deeply with like the context for what, what Addie means. And I'm sure y'all obviously have thought very deeply about <laughs> kind of the place that Addie holds in the American Girl canon and um, the much broader history of dolls of color and, and dolls of race and race kind of throughout American history. Right. I and mean, I think there's a really deep history for us to tap into there um, for, for programming for adults, but we're not to the point. I don't, I don't think we're going to be able to do that this year, unfortunately. And in these times. Well, I think something something that's really interesting about the potential of reaching on an adult audience is thinking about the gap between a story that's satisfying or not traumatizing to children, yeah. which is what the challenge was for Pleasant Company versus in some ways the really harsh reality on which it's based yeah. that maybe the adults can sit with in a different way. So I'm wondering, speaking to that, if you might share some of the history of Mary Walker and other folks on whom this is based. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the closest um, historical inspiration for Addie and her family is the Walker family who were enslaved um, on this plantation. Um, and um, it is a story that involves um, freedom seeking, um, but it is a story that um, is probably much more complicated and nuanced and involves um, probably a great deal more trauma than the way we might usually read the Addie books. Um, so uh, the mother of that family um, was a woman named Mary Walker. She was born uh, here, enslaved on this land in 1818. Her mother and her grandmother had both been enslaved on this plantation before her. Uh, both her mother and her grandmother had um, children that were born on this plantation who never had fathers recorded in the plantation records, which typically means that the father of those children was um, a, a white man who had sexually assaulted or raped those women. We don't know their identities for the most part, although Sidney Nathans, who's the historian who's dived most deeply into Mary Walker's story, has some speculation about who those men may have been. Uh, they may have been members of the Benahan or Cameron families who were the enslaving family on this plantation. Um, he's also speculated that they may have been, uh, in one case, uh, Mary Walker's father, may have been a, a white physician who was hired to treat enslaved women who were sick um, during an epidemic of disease here and was assaulting uh, his patients and the women that he treated. Um, Mary Walker grows up here um, in the mid-1800s. Um, we know that she was um, a very light-skinned woman. Later in life, she's described as being someone who could pass as white in some of the spaces that she entered in her life. Um, and Mary Walker learned to do the same kind of work that her mother, Priscilla, had done before her, which was doing uh, domestic work in the houses of the families who owned this plantation. She was forced to work in 
very close proximity, constantly on call um, alongside the Cameron family um, who enslaved her. Um, She also learned to be a very skilled seamstress from her mother as well. Um, Mary Walker was during this time period able to learn to read and write, um, which was, as we know, fairly extraordinary for an enslaved person. Um, By the 1830s, North Carolina had passed laws making it illegal for enslaved people to learn to read and write. Uh, Mary Walker may have been able to learn partially because she was assigned to labor as a personal maid and servant for uh, the daughters in the Cameron family. So she was constantly on call um, and was in close proximity to their lessons and tutoring and the very expensive education that they had. Um, By the 1830s, many of the daughters in the Cameron family who were young women at this point um, contracted tuberculosis. And uh, many of these women were sick for not just months, but years of their lives with tuberculosis. Several of these daughters eventually died from this tuberculosis. And so during these years, Mary Walker was ordered to serve as um, their nurse and caregiver uh, and aid throughout these years of illness. So this meant an even more demanding schedule of being on call. Um, And it also meant, um, in many cases, weeks or or months of painful separation from her own family. Uh, Mary Walker not only had, at this point, her mother and her grandmother living here, um, but she also had um, four children of her own who were born here. Um, Again, there was never a father recorded for those children um, in any of the records. Mary Walker herself throughout her life uh, refused to ever talk about or acknowledge who the father of her children was, but she likely was experiencing sexual harassment and rape throughout her life here as a young woman. Um, Her uh, oldest son, a boy named Frank, is described by the Cameron family as having green eyes and freckles and being so light-skinned that 95 out of 100 men would believe that he was a white man. Um, So there's very clear um, evidence of um, this this history of sexual assault in Mary Walker's family tree um, there. Um, as Mary Walker continues to labor as a nurse and a caregiver, um, the Cameron family eventually decide to take their daughters from North Carolina uh, out of the state and to seek medical aid to cure, hopefully, the surviving daughters' illnesses um, by going to the city of Philadelphia, which, of course, is also where Addie's freedom-seeking takes her. Mm-hmm. Um, Mary Walker goes on a series of trips with the Camerons to Philadelphia along with them, staying for weeks or months at a time in some cases. And the Cameron family um, knew that this meant taking an enslaved woman into free territory, into a place where it might be easier easier for her to find aid or to um, take her freedom for herself. Um, But they also knew that they had Mary Walker's entire family, and especially her children, um, captive behind her in North Carolina. So each time that Mary Walker goes away on these trips, she's, of course, thinking about um, if she does take her freedom, if she does tie to escape, what will the consequences be for her mother? What will the consequences be for her elderly grandmother? What will they be for her very young children? Um, On one of these trips, um, her... Uh, one of her young sons, a boy named Edward, uh, contracts a fever and dies before Mary Walker is able to return and see him. So she loses um, one of her children during one of these periods of separation, which of course must have been intensely painful. Um, And the Camerons sort of crow at times over the fact that they are bringing an enslaved person into free territory and that Mary Walker year after year does not escape from them in Philadelphia. They crow about this partially because the Cameron family built up their identity on ideas about slavery as a benevolent institution. And they love to publicly and internally portray themselves as people who were supposedly good slaveholders, um, supposedly um, often trying to paint slavery as about some sort of relationship of affection or loyalty, particularly between them and the people they enslaved who were doing domestic work and who were working in close proximity around them on a daily basis. 
Of course, we see from the horrors of Mary Walker's story, from the family separation and the stories of sexual assault and the violence that she faced on a daily basis, that was in no way how Mary Walker would have described these moments. Um, but the Cameron family in many ways take this as a sign that Mary Walker does not want to be free, would not want to escape from slavery. Whereas, of course, she was probably making a calculation about the very real dangers and risks for herself and her loved ones if she was to try to get free. Um, but in the summer of 1848, the Camerons are back in Philadelphia yet again. Uh, they have Mary Walker with them yet again. Um, and on this trip, uh, something changes for Mary Walker. She learns that uh, the Camerons are planning to sell or separate her family members in some way. This family unit that she has worked so hard to keep together is suddenly being threatened. Um, she also, in one conversation later in her life, alluded to the fact that she um, feared um, the rise of what she calls a young and reckless master. This may be an allusion to a renewed threat of sexual assault against her. This may be an allusion to um, perhaps some of the young men in the family playing a greater role in decision-making, and maybe she thought that they were planning to sell or separate her family members. Um, this threat is very, very real to Mary Walker because the Camerons have a massive plantation complex here in North Carolina. Um, but just a few years before this summer, um, the Camerons have bought land in Alabama and they have decided to start a sister plantation there. So Mary Walker has already seen 114 enslaved people marched off of her homeland here in North Carolina and force marched to Alabama to grow cotton in the deep South. And she knows that year after year, more and more people are going to be sent there. Um, so she has seen that trauma and that uh, ripping apart of families um, in a, a kind of massive scale right in front of her. Um, so when Mary Walker hears this threat, um, she decides that she believes she's probably going to be separated from her family no matter what. She decides to try to escape while she still is in the city of Philadelphia. Um, and she was able to escape from the Camerons with the aid of um, a network of folks known as the Vigilance Committee, a network of Black activists and abolitionists in the city of Philadelphia, um, as best as Dr. Nathan's pieces together the story, um, she uh, essentially walks out of the house where the Camerons are staying, right in central Philadelphia, as if she was running an errand under their orders, um, and she's taken in by this network of men. Her main contact was a Black man who worked as a waiter up the street from the house where the Camerons are staying, so she was able to have um, glancing contact with him along various errands. Um, and Mary Walker is hidden in a safe house long enough that um, the Camerons were not able to recapture her and they're forced to come back to North Carolina without her. Um, and she lives as a free person for the rest of her life. Um, but of course, mm -hmm. unlike in Addie's story, she does not have any of her children with her. Um, and so um, she spends years and years of her life fighting to try to reconnect her family in some way. Um, this includes um, sending uh, appeals to the Cameron family, including an offer to raise funds to buy her children's freedom. This includes hiring men to come on secret missions into North Carolina to try to make contact with her children and bring them away to her, um, but none of these missions ever succeed. Um, and I think often when we tell stories about freedom seeking, we often, sometimes, too often, tend to end the story with the moment of taking freedom. Um, and one of the things that sits with us very deeply in Mary Walker's story is that while she technically is living as a free person for much of this time. Um, she was, she did not feel free, right? She still felt bound to the people she loved who were enslaved. And um, she reports throughout years of her life, long periods of depression, grief, anxiety, days when she could not get out of bed, when she could not make small talk with people around her or go about her daily work because of the pain of, um, thinking about what was happening to her family. Um, she had two sons left living, Frank and Bryant, who were still here in North Carolina, and then her daughter, Agnes, who's the closest parallel to Addie in this story. 
Um, Agnes's full name was Agnes, but she was often called Aggie, of course, in the records here. Um, and as Agnes turns 12 and 13 and 14 years old, Mary Walker becomes increasingly panicked, um, again, that she is also facing sexual assault or sexual harassment in the Cameron households. Um, the Cameron children, for the most part, were working, doing domestic work in close proximity around the Cameron family during these years. Um, and um, Mary Walker's oldest son, Frank, um, tries to take his freedom as well. He runs from Stagville and tries to find his mother. Um, his story uh, doesn't have a clear ending for us. So we know that Frank is reported as making it to New Jersey. He's looking for Mary Walker, um, but he's unable to find her. He doesn't have enough information to locate her. He secretly gets a message from New Jersey to his grandmother, who was enslaved here in North Carolina, Mary Walker's mother, hoping that she will have some information to um, reconnect them. The Camerons intercept this message, and so they hire hunters to try to track down Frank. He's never recaptured and brought back here, but he also never reconnects with Mary Walker, and we don't know what else might have happened to him. Of course, fortunately, Mary Walker lives through the American Civil War. When the war ends in the spring of 1865, federal troops sweep into this part of North Carolina. There's a major Confederate surrender that happens here in what is now Durham. When federal troops come into Raleigh, Mary Walker's friends describe, they say she was wild with excitement at the thought that she would be able to even get a message into where her family was again. And there happened to be a man in the United States troops who were headquartered in Raleigh who had heard Mary Walker's story through some of these abolitionist networks. And he knew that she had family here. And then he went to the Cameron's estate in Raleigh. Um, and asked around looking for her family. Um, and he was able to find her two remaining children who were in North Carolina, Agnes and Bryant, there. Um, and they were able to get word that their mother was still alive and where she was. And in the summer of 1865, Agnes and Bryant are able to go up and meet Mary Walker. Um, and they end up living together um, in Cambridge, actually, um, for a period of years at the end of Mary Walker's life. Uh, Mary Walker um, does die when she's relatively young. Uh, she has many years of illness and uh, stress, obviously, throughout her life. Um, and again, Dr. Nathans, who studied her life most closely, speculates that she may have um, died at a younger age, partially because um, these years of the, the chronic illnesses that she was suffering were really exacerbated by these years of stress and grief, which really took a physical toll on her. Um, and um, we often tell Mary Walker's story here. Obviously, um, it's it's one of the stories we, we teach here all the time. Um, and we really hold on to it as a story about um, the, the dangers and, and the consequences of freedom seeking, um, the way that um, almost any enslaved person who took their freedom and escaped from slavery before 1865 um, suffered the reality that um, while they themselves might have legally or, or physically been free, um, the ties that bound them to family and friends and loved ones who were still enslaved often meant that uh, their life was was not free. And it really raises questions about um what we mean when we describe a formerly enslaved person as being free and, and the way that um, anyone who was enslaved was sort of uh, the rest of their life and their children's lives in many cases was shaped by uh, the, the trauma and, and the ghosts of um, the, the realities of, of enslavement. Um, I, there's so many other things we could talk about in Mary Walker's story. <laughs> um, it's one of the, one of the richest stories that we have. Um, of course, there's all kinds of parallels in there to the Addy story, right? That the names match up, the the ties to Philadelphia. Um, there's at least, you know, a, a grain of that sort of. Um, one of the things I appreciate about Addy's story of freedom seeking is that it does include a story of family separation and a story of how complicated it could be to try to piece family together. Of course, in Addy's case, mm. that all kind of ties together a little more neatly than it did for 
many, 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 many other people. Um, right. Hmm. What do we know about how Aggie's story ends? I think one of the sort of interesting and kind of haunting parts of um, Mary Walker's story is that when her family is back together, they've been separated for 17 years at that point. Um, Both her children were under 10 when she had last seen them. Um, So Aggie has lived through many experiences, many of which we don't have any record of, um, without Mm -hmm. um, them being together as family. And so while I'm sure there was a great deal of joy and reconnection in their reunion. Um, That reunion is not without complications and tensions along the way um, as they are kind of trying to rebuild what it means to be family to each other and and how Mm. um, they reconnect with each other. Aggie does marry. Um, Her brother, Bryant, struggles with alcoholism and uh, kind of this persistent instability throughout his life and and Aggie really becomes the support for their whole family network um, to some degree financially um, managing renting a house that the family owns and other things like that um, but also kind of becomes this this linchpin that's kind of holding the family together through through very difficult times right through through those years and um we know that she marries a man named james um bergwin who was a carpenter um and who was also um had been enslaved in north carolina so um they both end up encountering each other in cambridge and that's where they marry and and live together ultimately along with Mary Walker and, and her brother Bryant for a period of time. But they have this at least adjacent sort of North Carolina experience binding, tying them together. And we know now um, there are living descendants of Mary Walker, and I believe they're from Agnes's side of the family. I've spoken with one of them by phone some of Mary Walker's descendants were were able to or chose at times to pass into white portions of society in the North. Uh, Mary Walker herself um, was encouraged to do that at times by white abolitionists or white allies who she worked with, and she was very resistant about ever doing that. Um, she, um, you know, on one occasion told by um, a white acquaintance that she should kind of put behind her, her life of being enslaved and, and her children and um, her family and instead um, kind of pass his way to, and reinvent herself um, in um, society. And she is very, very adamant um, about not doing that, um, which stands out especially in her story because she's also regarded as someone who was very quiet and reserved and tended to not be particularly assertive and aggressive in conversation. But some of her descendants do do that. um, And some of her family members marry into marry uh, Irish American folks and and white families living in uh, around the Boston area. And so Mary Walker surviving descendants today um, until they were contacted by Dr. Nathan's during his research, um, completely self-identified as white and never would have, as far as I know, never would have thought that they had ancestors that had been enslaved um, in the United States because um, it, it never would have occurred to them to to look for that in their ancestry. On the flip side, when you look at, you know, a site like Monticello, there were many people who self-identified as white who were descendants of Jefferson who never would have understood themselves as having African-American ancestry, right? Like people who claimed for hundreds of years direct lineage from Jefferson. You know, his forced relationship with Sally Hemings, just like you're saying, she's a half-sister to his dead wife. Yeah. Like as you were describing these relationships, like not only is there rape and coercion, there's incest. Mm -hmm. Or is that not accurate? I don't know the I don't know the Monticello story inside out. I think I think that we do what we do see is that um, for many reasons that we can get into. But um, when we work in public history, right, one of the things we see is that we're very comfortable with history as uh, a linear narrative and as a progressive narrative, right? So um, when we work with visitors or with the public as we're teaching, you know, it's just it's just very common, you know, from grade school through all ages for people to want to frame history as sort of a, a slow and steady march of progress, right? And that things kind of 
easily and linearly evolve from one thing to the next. And one of the consequences of that is that we see visitors tending to conflate um, the history of enslavement with the history of racial segregation, right? And assume that the story of race-based slavery in the United States is a story of as much segregation and separation between enslaved African and African-American people and white enslavers um, as we might think of a story of the Jim Crow era. Um, and obviously, even that story from the Jim Crow era is a false construction. But but certainly, one of the things that that means is that visitors often, one of the things that visitors encounter in Mary Walker's story is a reality that someone who was enslaved, like Mary Walker, um, in her case, doing domestic work, was constantly in very close forced intimacy and proximity with the people who enslaved her. Um, and that Mary Walker and her family members were actually very forced through this institution to um, kind of know everything there was to know about the people who enslaved them. Um, And in Mary Walker's case, at least, were able to use that to navigate the system of slavery to some degree. And in Mary Walker's case, to seek her freedom, right? Um, She's able to make calculations about her freedom seeking because she knows that the Camerons are carrying these assumptions about affection and loyalty and slavery is a benevolent institution. And she's able to sort of manipulate between the cracks of that in part to, to escape while they're in Philadelphia. Mm. Um, but there's also a horrific side of that, right? Which is the, the, the stories of sexual assault and harassment and, and daily violence in that household that also comes out of that same proximity, right? That someone like Mary Walker or like Agnes or like Bryant is the enslaved person who is, most proximate to the people who enslave them, and so is most likely to be a target of a, a demonstration of control or a show of temper or um, these kind of daily acts of, of violence that were part of these households, right? So, you know, I've, I've seen on your site you're doing listening sessions with um, descendants, which you were just talking about descendants. I wonder if you can kind of share about that. Sure. Um, so we have. Um, have had a really active descendant program of some kind ever since, really since the site was established. Oral histories and information from descendants has always been critical to knowing the history of this place. Because while there are thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of records from this plantation's history which survive, they're almost all written by white folks, and they're almost all written by white people who are in positions of power. They're written by slavers and overseers. Um, and so often this oral history um, from descendants fills in all kinds of pieces of the story of this place. Um, there are still hundreds of people living right here in Durham, where we're located, who can trace their ancestry back to people who were enslaved here. There are thousands of people all over the U.S., in California, in Michigan, in New York, uh, probably almost anywhere you can think of, who can trace their ancestry back here. And so we've always had a very active program to collect oral histories and to do genealogy work and to um, make the archives accessible to descendants and to figure out ways to, to build family trees and document the story of these families. But A lot of our current projects right now are focused on how we can bring descendants into decision making and into a place of authority about what work we do and how we do that work. So um, that can mean everything from, you know, a listening session around uh, a project, a new project that we have underway, which means basically that descendants get to be the first people to give feedback and to make calls about what a project should look like or um, what they want to see at Stagville, to working with descendants to plan programs or plan events, and to and then of course along with that to work with families still who want to do genealogy or who want to have family reunions here at our site. Unfortunately, I expect that most of our family reunions this summer will be canceled, but um, we're scheduled to have four mm. um, different family reunions this this summer, which are some of the best parts of our work, um, getting to work with those families. And then we also have um, projects underway to help families with archiving their own history. So rather than just working with families to collect specific memories that have to do with Stagville or have to do directly with this place, we have a photo archive project where we do 
free scanning and digital archiving of um, any family photographs that any descendant family wants archived for themselves. And, and we'll duplicate and back it up here. Similarly, we do work with audio recording. And this has led to even branching out to things like documenting cemeteries or documenting, helping to document historically Black neighborhoods where descendants live, where maybe the neighborhood is not entirely composed of descendants, but it's still a history of a place that's threatened right now and a place that um, was deeply shaped by descendant families in some way. And so we're trying to do a lot of reckoning work around how can the resources and the skills that we have as a historic site and in our staff um, be kind of put at the disposal of descendants um, rather than having a relationship with descendants that's purely about, you know, gathering some kind of material for an exhibit here or for, you know, to add an extra story into a tour here. Um, That's really about descendants having um, a stake in getting to shape the work we do and how we do it instead of just kind of being part of our public, if that makes sense. That's a long and evolving process. <laughs> it's something that obviously many sites of slavery are dealing with. And we have a, a very small staff and we have very few resources. So um, this is a constantly evolving project to figure out the, the best and the most creative ways that we can do that. And I am the most grateful every single day and every single week to the fact that we have uh, many descendant families who are not just willing to engage with us, but are willing to tell us very frankly and very honestly when we need to do something better or when we're doing something wrong and what that should look like. Um, because that in and of itself is an act of trust to, to trust us, to, to listen and to, and to fix. And, and so I feel deeply grateful for every descendant that is willing to come here um, or to, to communicate with us in some way. And of course, for many people, this is a very uh, painful place to be, right? There, there are a thousand different descendants. We'll have a thousand different experiences and emotional relationships to this place. There's, there's no way for, for, certainly for me to ever sum that up or put that into words. But, but uh, I, we know that for many people, it takes a great deal of energy and, and a great deal of weight to come to a place or uh, connect with a place where they know their ancestors experienced trauma and violence like this place. And so it's, it's an extraordinary thing for, for people to do that with us. Absolutely. If people are really interested in specific resources about Stagville, we're including this as kind of the first step in our Addy syllabus. Yeah. What would be a great way for folks to reach out either to you or to your site um, we found you on Instagram, which may not be the most scholarly way to start engaging with Stagville, but it's how we found out about the connection. So we were really thrilled. But what would be a great way to get in touch again with either you or your site or even just a resource if people wanted to get going on your website? Sure. So folks are always welcome to, yeah, as you did, find us on social media or find our website. We're part of the North Carolina Division of Historic Sites. So we have uh, certainly a website through that. And if people are interested in specific research or specific programs or specific follow-up, they can always just email us directly. Um, We we can, uh, the best email to reach our staff is just info, info at stagville.org, which is S-T-A-G-V-I-L-L-E. Normally, I would give our phone number and invite folks to give us a call <laughs> at our office, but our staff are inconsistently in our offices right now, so I can't promise that. But if you're listening to this in the future and we are back under normal operations, uh, you are obviously welcome to, to call our office number. And I would absolutely recommend if folks are interested, not just in Stagville, but specifically in the Walker family story. And I would definitely recommend not just coming to Stagville or talking to us if you get a chance, but also looking for Sydney Nathan's biography of Mary Walker and her family, which is an extraordinary book and gets into all kinds of parts of that story that we do not have time to get into. Um, That book is called To Free a Family. And again, it's a biography that focuses specifically on Mary Walker and her children from their history here in North Carolina, all the way through Philadelphia and and follows them through 
uh, a few generations uh, past Mary Walker's story. Um, it's really an extraordinary piece of research. Excellent. I'm kind of curious if, if because your interest is in creative nonfiction and oral history, we've had we've talked a little bit about the WPA oral histories on the show. We've had people write to us about them. Can you kind of position those as something that, you know, if we were putting this on the syllabus, would we put this on the syllabus? <laughs> um, so um, we do work with the WPA narratives all the time. Um, I think that we use them with students on our site um, and with adults at our site um, with a specific facilitated program that's run by staff. So that involves a deep dive into the context for those stories. Um, we actually have three WPA narratives that were recorded with people who were enslaved at Stagville, including one that was recorded probably in a former slave dwelling that we have still standing on our site. And all three of the narratives are very abbreviated and describe how much loyalty and affection these people felt for the family who enslaved them and how sad they were when the man who enslaved them died and have very rote descriptions of sort of agricultural labor, not a lot else. There's a lot missing from those narratives, right? So we do use them, like I said, in this like facilitated program. Um, there are, so like the Library of Congress and some other folks have done a good job writing some slightly dense but relatively accessible essays and introductions to the WPA narratives that talk about the various problems and complexities with the WPA narratives. They're also, I also think that the WPA narratives, if you encourage people to read broadly across like if you sit down and read the entire collection of WPA narratives from North Carolina, they don't all sound like the narratives that were taken at Stackville, right? There are lots of stories about that are fairly honest and, and horrific and is someone talking in a fairly transparent way about um, the horrors that they experienced in slavery. Um, but there are also narratives like the narratives from Stagville. Um, so I think the more broadly someone reads, the more full the picture is from those narratives, I think one or two in isolation. I also think picking out specific narratives and recommending them, which we do sometimes with programs here, where we have a few from North Carolina that are longer, more complete, um, talk about more tough subjects. Um, so sometimes we'll recommend specific ones that are more complete, but we try not to recommend them or teach about them ever without talking about the context for them. So um, in, in many ways. Um, so when we teach them with students, we do like three exercises before we even let them see the narratives. And then we do a whole dissection of the narratives based on what we learned from the prior three exercises. Um, so, you know, the students spend 90 minutes with us and then it's the last 30 minutes of the program where they are actually reading the text of the narrative and dissecting it. Mm. Um, I mean, that's for eighth graders. So, <laughs> which might not be your audience, but um, we don't know. Who knows? Yeah. Mostly, mostly. I think not. those narratives have so much power that it's very hard to put them aside, right? Like we have these three, I can yeah. be frustrated by the incompleteness of them here at Stagville, but there's still any measure of words from someone who was enslaved on this site, mm -hmm. which is so few and far between in the records of this place that there is like, it seemed it, it doesn't feel possible that we can put them aside. And we've actually learned some pretty, like these narratives are each like half a page long, but really tight reading of them has given us actually some really strong interpretive points to draw from um, those, those narratives. Um, so we, one of the men describes how sad he was when the man who enslaved him died and how he had to be a pallbearer at his funeral, um, which most people read and are like, oh, that's a position of honor. Um, but he describes the fact that when they came into the chapel and first he mocks the man who enslaved him for being so heavy when he talks about carrying the coffin. Um, and then he describes the scene in which they brought the coffin into the chapel at this grandiose funeral for this wealthy man full of white elite families. And that he was forced to sit on the floor at the front of the chapel during the service, like practically under the coffin um, in this moment, which is like a very degrading and dismissing scene with Matt. He doesn't talk about how that made him feel in the narrative. He does not broach that emotional sort of threshold of it. But you can imagine what it might have been like for him and his family members to kind of be marginalized and be pushed aside in that way. Two of them talk about how Paul Cameron 
the man who enslaved them would stop them in the road or on a path if they passed him anywhere and would ask him, ask them, who are you? Who do you belong to? And refuse to let them keep walking or keep working until they told him, I belong to you. And that comes from multiple people here. Um, It's a very small beat in their narratives. They don't, again, talk about the emotional weight of it, but we've been able to dive more deeply into that moment. Um, And these are both actually men who did domestic work for the Cameron family. So these are both people who, like, Paul Cameron knows exactly who they are. They're his cook. They're his body servant. Like, And there's this just like, it's just this like act of power play and control in that moment for him to stop them from doing the work that he has ordered them to do so that he can listen to them recite yet again that he owns them and has authority over them. Like, right. And then give them a nickel or give them a dime and pretend that it's an act of generosity when in fact it's like a reminder of how unfree they are. Right. So there's all kinds of like (laughs) little bits that we can dissect out of those stories, but it takes a lot of, yeah, a lot of context and a lot of sitting with them. Um, Yeah. I feel like we've ended up using the WPA narratives actually less as we use them less as a resource to teach about enslavement and more as a resource to teach about black sharecroppers' lives in the 1930s Mm -hmm. on former plantation land because the families that were interviewed here, the Camerons still own the land. They were still sharecropping, living in former slave dwellings when they're being interviewed. So when we teach with those narratives, we're actually really teaching about like what was 1930 legacies of slavery at Stackville (laughs) looking like. And that's really like the takeaway that we use for students from that lesson. It's mostly not focused on getting students to less focused on getting students to use the narrative to learn about the 1860s. And I I think that works very well, but I I don't know that that's not Addie's time period, obviously. (laughs) Old Addie. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The rest of Addie's story. Do you ever have the descendants of the Camerons come to your site or seek out any Stagville interaction? Um, We have very limited um, interaction with descendants of the Camerons. Um, I have met a few descendants. I've just met the first descendants uh, in the last year or so um, on my part. And the only folks I've met in person live quite far away. Um, So I don't know if they've ever, certainly not since I've worked here, they've never come to the site or visited. Yeah, I think we also have here in the local area, we also have quite a few families that still live right in this immediate radius um, whose ancestors were uh, overseers here. There's, there's, I've met more uh, descendants of overseers than descendants of the enslaving family. I think, yeah, we don't, we don't have a particularly deep relationship. We don't get funding from uh, the Camerons or, or Benihan descendants um, in any significant capacity. I know that we have some uh, descendants of people who are enslaved here who are very interested in, uh, who have expressed to me that they hope that our site staff can build a relationship with descendants of the Cameron family so that the descendants of enslaved people here could then connect with descendants of the Cameron family. And I know one specific descendant family who has expressed that that's important to them, something that they're very drawn to. I haven't had the relationship yet to to help make that connection for them. But of course, um, if that's what they're interested in us facilitating and there's a possibility for us to facilitate it, we would we would gladly do it. But we just haven't had those close those close ties yet. A lot of our research right now is focused on re-examining the narratives about uh, the Cameron family and the way that they have presented themselves over generations. There's a lot of work done here in bringing forward the stories of enslaved people. Um, but what I found is that while stories of enslaved people have been brought forward, there was still, uh, in many cases, a lot of the old uh, mythologies and kind of frameworks of thinking about the enslaving family were still in place. And so we've been doing a, a lot of work in the last year and a half or so, and that continues going forward on trying to really reassess how we talk about just the way that we want to talk about enslaved people as individuals and focus on individual stories and focus on specific experiences of enslaved people, not just flat experience that uh, of, you know, some sort of generic picture of enslavement here. Um, In a similar way, we're trying to kind of deeply dive into some of the very specific stories of the people who were perpetrators here. 
that's still in the early stages. I expect that maybe in the course of that research, we would encounter some more camera descendants, but I'm not sure we're there yet. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, hopefully next year we'll actually have an Addy event again. <laughs> our <laughs> events are obviously uh, canceled this year, but maybe next spring. Keep us posted. Like maybe we meet the age requirement yeah, and hopefully right. we meet the height requirement. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, should you have one? Uh, so yeah, we'd be very excited to hear more about that as it yeah. continues to develop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.